Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 229. He takes faces at the lowest rates. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about an ad that appeared in the Boston Gazette in 1773 for a black artist who is described as possessing an extraordinary genius for painting portraits. From this brief mention, we'll explore the life of a gifted visual artist who was enslaved in Boston, his friendship with Phyllis Wheatley, the enslaved poet, and the mental gymnastics that were required on the part of white enslavers to justify owning people like property. Through the life of a second gifted painter, we'll find out how the coming of the American Revolution changed life for some enslaved African Americans in Boston. And through the unanswered questions about the lives of both these men, we'll examine the limits of what historical sources can tell us about any given enslaved individual. But before we talk about the enslaved painter who took faces at the lowest rates, I just want to pause and thank our Patreon sponsors. These are the loyal listeners who choose to support the show with $2, $5, or even $10 a month to help offset the costs of making Hub History. Those are costs like web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, audio processing tools, and our transcription service. I know that I'm embarrassingly far behind on honoring your sponsor perks, and I apologize for that. I was hoping to put together an in-person event for some of our local sponsors in August, but the Delta variant of the virus has me spooked, so we may be in a wait-and-see situation again. Just because I've fallen behind on your perks doesn't mean that I appreciate you any less. So, before I go any further, thank you, sponsors. And if you're not yet a sponsor and you'd like to become one, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thanks again. Now it's time for this week's main topic. A classified ad ran in the Boston Gazette starting in January 1773 and several more times that year. At Mr. McLean's, the watchmaker near the townhouse, is a Negro man whose extraordinary genius has been assisted by one of the best masters in London. He takes faces at the lowest rates. Specimens of his performance may be seen at said place. Now, while there were free black people in Massachusetts in the 1770s, that was the exception rather than the rule. In almost every case, when you encounter the word Negro in print in that era, it's referring to someone who was enslaved. So this advertisement was for an enslaved black man, and taking faces meant that he could paint or draw portraits. He was displaying samples of his work at a watchmaker's shop near the building we know as the Old State House probably on today's State Street. The February 4th, 1773 edition of the Gazette was the first one I could find online that carried this advertisement for the services of an enslaved portraitist, and it also carried ads for enslaved humans themselves, like this man who was advertised as part of an estate sale. To be sold by said executor, an extraordinary good Negro fellow, about 21 years of age, also, four pair of bed screws, one pair of hand screws, a horse and chaise, a horse cart, about 12,000 of good dry boards, a large scale beam that will weigh a ton and end, and about 1,000 of weights. In the same edition of the paper, there were two ads listing young black girls to be given away for free to new enslavers. 
One's listed as being two months old, and no age is given for the other, who's just described as a very likely hardy female Negro child of as fine a breed as any in America. So in one breath, we see an enslaved painter who's described as possessing extraordinary genius, another enslaved man who's treated as household furniture, and two enslaved children who are deemed literally worthless. From a primary source like this, it's a lot easier to draw general conclusions about the practice of slavery in Boston in 1773 than it is to gain specific knowledge about the life of any enslaved individual, like our painter. Luckily, we have another strong clue to the identity of the enslaved painter. Thanks to Phyllis Wheatley, we know that there was an African-American portrait painter who was working in Boston at around this time. Phyllis Wheatley was kidnapped from West Africa when she was about seven years old, brought to Boston, and enslaved by the Wheatley family. Unlike many enslavers in Boston, Susanna Wheatley encouraged Phyllis's natural creativity and knack for language. Soon, she was reading not only English, but also Latin and Greek, and she began composing poetry as a teenager. Now about 20 years old, she was considered a highly skilled poet. She had just returned from a trip to Britain with her enslaver's son looking for a publisher for a book of poetry, and later that year she'd be manumitted, or released from slavery. In her now-famous 1773 book, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, she included a poem titled, To S.M., A Young African Painter on Seeing His Works. In the florid style that was so popular among poetry lovers at the time, it includes the lines, Still wondrous youth, each noble path pursue, on deathless glories fix thine ardent view. Still may the painters and the poets fire, to aid thy pencil and thy verse conspire. Though Phyllis Wheatley doesn't identify the wondrous youth beyond the initials S.M., there are additional clues that let us name the painter as Scipio Moorhead. In an essay about searching for the details of Scipio's life in the historic record, historian Eric Slaughter wrote, It is in fact only from Phyllis Wheatley's poem that we have any knowledge that Scipio Moorhead was a painter. A manuscript note left in pencil by Daniel O'Connor, a white reader, and his copy of Wheatley's poems on various subjects indicates that Wheatley's poem to S.M., a young African painter on seeing his works, was addressed to Scipio Moorhead, a black, quote, servant whose genius inclined him that way, unquote. The materials for narrating Moorhead's life are few. The fact that someone wrote a poem to him is the only thing that truly distinguishes the archival traces left by or around this particular person from the traces of many other enslaved persons whose lives remain largely invisible to us. The Wheatleys and the Moorheads were neighbors and friends, and there's been speculation that both the enslaved painter Scipio and the enslaved poet Phyllis found mentorship in the household of Reverend John Moorhead and his wife Sarah Parsons Moorhead. Phyllis Wheatley became famous in both the colonies and England after writing an elegaic poem after the death of Reverend George Whitfield. Whitfield was one of the first itinerant ministers, one of the founders of the Methodist Church, and one of the founders of the evangelical movement. His ministry inspired the Great Awakening that helps explain why the United States remains such a heavily religious nation even today. 
Though Johnny Moorhead was a prominent Scots-Irish Presbyterian, both the Wheatleys and the Moorheads were influenced by Whitfield's teaching. And Sarah Moorhead had composed poems about the minister in the past. Professor Wendy Raphael Roberts, who's made a career of studying Phyllis Wheatley, compares the language Wheatley used in her Elegy for Reverend Whitfield to the language Sarah Moorhead had earlier used. And she concludes that Sarah Moorhead helped to nurture the creative impulses in both young artists. Claims have been made for the Reverend Mather Biles as a poetic mentor for Wheatley, an idea that's now commonplace. My comparison of Whitfieldian poems suggests that Wheatley found another poetic mentor in the revival supporter Sarah Moorhead. Given the friendship between the Moorhead and Wheatley families, and Moorhead's mentorship of her own slave, Scipio Moorhead, and his artistic pursuits, an active mentorship, rather than only poetic emulation, was quite possible. The Moorhead household cultivated art and poetry as part of its religious experience and understood them to be tools for steering the winds of a revival. It would have been a natural extension of Sarah Moorhead's religious and artistic vision to take the young Wheatley under her wing as well. As she was significantly older than the painter, Phyllis Wheatley probably had a hand in Scipio's artistic education herself, and Slaughter speculates about another potential source. In the 1760s, Scipio might have found a mentor of sorts in Pompey Fleet, a slave in the household of the Boston publisher Thomas Fleet. Pompey Fleet's woodcuts for the prodigal daughter, made around 1750, may have been copied from a lost English source. They were subsequently recopied by other engravers, including a young Isaiah Thomas, who later wrote about Pompey in his history of printing in America. Much as it might seem strange to advertise the extraordinary genius of an enslaved painter alongside enslaved children who were seen as literally worthless, it also seems strange to both tutor these young people in the arts, recognize and encourage their incredible skill and creativity, and yet enslave them. In his book, The City-State of Boston, past podcast guest Mark Peterson explains the mental gymnastics that families like the Moorheads and the Wheatleys performed to justify enslaving people who they clearly recognized as having inherent value in humanity. They were all believers in liberty, but their definition of the term, a Protestant Christian liberty, was complex. This liberty was not licensed to do what one lists, but freedom to know what is right and to do good. This was a freedom rooted in submission to an omnipotent God's authority and acceptance of Christ's love, demonstrated in his substitutionary atonement for humankind's sins, which transformed believers from slaves of sin into free and active servants of God's divine purpose. As chief beneficiaries of the commercial prosperity that Bostonians wrung from the Atlantic trade, the members of this circle shared the luxury to treat people they claimed to possess as privileged servants like Phyllis or Scipio, rather than as field hands. In these circles, the practice of African chattel slavery was a serious but murky problem. As we've seen, as early as 1700, Samuel Sewell argued that the slave trade was inherently wrong, legalized man-stealing, and no more justified than the selling of Joseph by his brothers. Other 18th century Bostonians justified slavery on the grounds that it was wrong to leave a continent in darkness, untouched by Christianity, and neglect the souls of those unfortunates already captured into slavery and deposited on American shores. 
Some, like Harrison Gray, Joseph Sewell, and Andrew Elliott, minister of the New North Church, were actively opposed to slavery, refused to own slaves themselves, and spoke out against the institution. Others, John Wheatley and John Moorhead among them, saw no contradiction between owning slaves and treating them humanely as Christians, just as they would servants in less permanent forms of bondage. So perhaps Sarah Moorhead believed she was doing the humane thing when she enslaved a young African boy in 1760 and gave him the name Scipio. In his essay, Eric Slaughter explored the slim details of Scipio's early life that could be gleaned from historic sources, writing, On June 11, 1760, a group of white Bostonians presented a black child they called Scipio Saracen to an Anglican minister for baptism. While it's possible to reconstruct fundamental facts about the white players in this ceremony, and even about the setting in which it took place, the child at its center remains largely invisible. King's Chapel, a stone building sometimes called the masterpiece of the first architect of British America, may itself have been partially constructed by unfree black laborers. Once inside the building, social conventions segregated black and white parishioners. In the recent past, numerous whites had brought children of African descent to Reverend Henry Caner for baptism. Thomas Hayes, one of Scipio's sponsors, was a cordwainer or shoemaker. He held the title to a pew in King's Chapel and had served as a witness in the infant baptisms of at least two other slaves before Scipio Saracen, including Reverend Caner's own slave, Pompey. Six years later, Caner would baptize Hayes' slave, Crispin. Scipio's other sponsor was Sarah Parsons Moorhead, a published poet who had occasionally taught children how to draw, paint, and embroider. Sarah Moorhead was married to the pastor of the Presbyterian Church, Reverend John Moorhead. The surviving baptismal record describes Scipio Saracen as a Negro servant to Reverend John Moorhead. But in late colonial New England, a Negro servant was synonymous with a slave. Sarah and John owned Scipio. His origin is as unclear as his age. Scipio is one of the names most frequently given to newly imported black male slaves by white masters in New England in the middle of the 18th century. The names of classical worthies and gods that white masters gave to black men in 18th century British America Scipio, Cato, Caesar, Bacchus, Pompey, Neptune, Nero, and Jupiter were the most common such names in Boston marked even baptized slaves as pagan or pre-Christian, and served to ironize the power dynamic between slaveholders and slaves. Slaughter points out that one of the details that cannot be gleaned from historic sources is Scipio's age. When Phyllis wrote about him in 1773, she was about 20 years old, and her references to him as a youth indicate that she was at least a little bit older than him. If he was an infant when he was baptized in 1760, he might have been as young as 13 years old. If so, his skill as a portraitist is even more impressive, because many people believe that he created the portrait of Phyllis Wheatley that ended up being transposed to an engraving and used as the frontispiece for her book of poetry. When her enslaver Susanna Wheatley fell ill, Phyllis had to cut her 1773 trip to England short returning to Boston before she could secure a publisher for her book of poems. In her absence, Captain Robert Califf, acting as the Wheatley's agent, 
continued to search for a sponsor. In a letter to the family, he reported that Selena Hastings, the Countess Huntington, was interested in financing the publication, but she had a couple of requests. I'd like to forget to mention to you, she's fond of having the book dedicated to her. But one thing she desired, which she said she hardly thought would be denied her, that was to have Phyllis's picture in the frontispiece. So that if you would get it done, it can be engraved here. I do imagine it can be easily done, and think would contribute greatly to the sale of the book. I am impatient to hear what the old countess says upon the occasion, and shall take the earliest opportunity of waiting upon her when she comes to town. At the countess's request, a portrait was made of Phyllis Wheatley, which is usually attributed to the hand of Scipio Moorhead, then that portrait was made into an engraving. Some articles about Scipio Moorhead state that he traveled to London to make the plate for the engraving himself, but I couldn't find any period sources to support that claim. If he created the likeness of Phyllis, it's likely that he sketched or painted her portrait, and the original was lost after being sent to London and used to create a plate. The remaining engraving is considered the first portrait of a woman writer at work in the Americas. In a 1996 article for the William & Mary Quarterly about 18th century representations of African Americans, Barbara E. Lacey describes the unusual nature of this portrait. The frontispiece portrait in poems on various subjects, religious and moral, is believed to be based on the work of black painter Scipio Moorhead, a member of the household of the Reverend John Moorhead of Boston and a friend of Phyllis Wheatley. The frontispiece shows a slim young woman seated in a curved back chair at an oval table with a quill pen, inkwell, book, and writing paper. She's writing, but has stopped and lifted her head to compose the next lines. Her eyes look off, but not at the world around her. She is inwardly directed, reading her thoughts. Yet the inscription on the portrait's border identifies her as Phyllis Wheatley, Negro servant to Mr. John Wheatley of Boston. She's presented to English readers as a woman of refinement, a poet, and a servant. An improbable, thought-provoking combination of roles. I thought that the marginal note by Daniel O'Connor that Eric Slaughter told us about might have been the only reference to Scipio by name during his own era. But past podcast guest J.L. Bell turned up one more in conjunction with John Moorhead's death. The Reverend passed away in December of 1773, and Phyllis Wheatley penned a new poem in his memory. Addressed to Mary Moorhead, Sarah and John's daughter, the elegy to Miss Mary Moorhead on the death of her father, the Reverend Mr. John Moorhead, focused on the dual loss suffered by the Moorhead family and Reverend Moorhead's church. Written in a more simple style than the Ode to Scipio, it includes straightforward couplets like... Thine and the church's sorrows I deplore. Moorhead is dead, and friendship is no more. In the weeks after the minister's death, a printer named William McAlpine set the poem in type and sold it as a broadsheet in the streets of Boston. Into the void left by Moorhead's passing stepped Reverend David McClure. McClure was an itinerant minister, in the early months of 1774, he'd preached from pulpits in Salem, Newburyport, and at Portsmouth, Exeter, and Dover, New Hampshire. His diary entry for April 28th notes that while in Portsmouth, he 
received an invitation to supply the pulpit of the late Venerable Mr. Moorhead in Boston. The next entry in his diary from May 4th shows just how closely McClure had stepped into the late Johnny Moorhead's shoes. Put up at the widow Moorhead's. Found the place convenient for study. The family small. The widow is unhappily deranged. The distraction is of the melancholy cast, silent and averse to company or society. She was once an accomplished wit and beauty, tenderly beloved by her husband. Her distraction was thought to be the effect of an uncommon flow of spirits and lively imagination too intensely applied to reading and study. One son and two daughters survive. The son Alexander is now a surgeon in the British Navy in Boston Harbor. Her daughter Mary takes care of her poor mother. A Negro young man does the housework. Scipio is an ingenious and serious African. He possesses a natural genius for painting and has taken several tolerable likenesses. In quoting this passage for a 2016 blog post about Scipio, J.L. Bell notes, It's a pity that McClure attributed Sarah Moorhead's depression to too much reading and study, rather than, say, the death of her husband less than six months before. That would seem to be the last word on the so-called Negro Man of Extraordinary Genius, who was advertised in 1773 as taking faces at the lowest rates in Boston. Scipio, who was enslaved by the Moorhead family, was a gifted visual artist who had a friendship with the much more famous Phyllis, who was enslaved by the Wheatley family and who was also a gifted poet. Case closed. Or maybe not. In the early 2000s, another enslaved artist who was active in Boston at the same time began to re-emerge from the archives. One of the founders of the Hingham Historical Society in the early 20th century gave the organization a huge collection of antiques that she had inherited. Among the collection were portraits of Henry and Christian Barnes, along with the collected letters of both. Christian Barnes especially was quite a letter writer, writing to her husband when he was away, to friends and acquaintances in Boston after the Barnes family moved from Boston to Marlboro, and later in life even to one of the three African-Americans whom the family had enslaved. Henry Barnes ran a distillery, and he manufactured pearl ash, or potassium carbonate, which was used as a leavener before the invention of baking powder. Longtime fans will remember that Eben Horsford of Boston first developed baking powder in the 1860s, then used his fortune to promote the crackpot theory that Vikings had originally settled the Charles River Valley. Learn more about him in episode 17. Barnes used the profits from his own leavening agent to buy an estate in Marlboro, as well as purchasing at least three African Americans who were enslaved as household servants. Among them was a woman named Daphne, who enters the historical record briefly in May of 1745, when she was baptized at Trinity Church in Boston. Church records note that she was an adult, and that her son Prince was baptized alongside her. Prince, we should note, is another very common name for enslaved men in New England, and, like Scipio, it was intended to ironize the power dynamic between slaveholders and slaves. While Daphne was taken to Marlborough when the Barnes family moved there, it appears that Prince was not. He may have been raised in the household of one of Christian Barnes' relatives in Hingham, 
but he's not mentioned in her letters until November 1769. In a letter on November 20th, she wrote, Daphne's son Prince is here, and I'm sitting to him for my picture. He has taken a copy of my brother's extremely well, and if mine has the least resemblance, I shall have a strong inclination to send it to you, purely for the curiosity. Though it's nothing but a daub, for he has not proper materials to work with. Apparently, she approved of his artistic talents, because three days later, Christian noted in a letter that Henry had purchased Prince, saying, I believe he has some design of improving his genius in painting. In both the understatement of the year and a commentary on the inhumanity of slavery, she adds, Daphne appears to be much better reconciled to a state of slavery since her son's arrival. Upon the whole, I believe there is not a happier set of Negroes in any kitchen in the province. Christian Barnes put Prince to work practicing his portraiture, at first as a novelty, and within a few months she wrote, Were I only to scan on the qualifications of my limner, it would be a subject for several sheets. He is a most surprising instance of the force of natural genius. For without the least instruction or improvement, he has taken several faces, which are thought to be very well done. He has taken a copy of my picture, which I think has more of my resemblance than Copley's. He is now taking his own face, which I will certainly send you, as it must be valued as a curiosity by any friend you shall please to bestow it upon. The word limner in this context just means a portraitist. Since Barnes already compared his work favorably to John Singleton Copley's, one of the most celebrated portrait artists of the 18th century, it must have been pretty good. Ms. Barnes noted that Prince was working with pastels on blue paper and was desperate to find better materials for him to work with. She wanted to get him decent paints and some instruction, because already in March 1770, she saw Prince's paintings as a potential money-making operation, writing... If you should meet in your travels with anyone who is a proficient in the art, I wish you would make some inquiries into these particulars, for people in general think Mr. Copley will not be willing to give him any instruction, and you know there is nobody else in Boston that does anything at the business. And I should likewise be obliged to you, if you could employ some friend who is a judge of those things, to purchase a small assortment of crayons, with other materials proper to the business, that he may be kept employed in this way till he has made some further improvement. And then I intend to exhibit him to the public, and don't doubt that he will do honor to the profession. Apparently, her husband Henry had a reputation for get-rich-quick schemes, because she quickly added, You laugh now and think that this is one of Barnes' schemes, but you're quite mistaken. It's entirely my own, and as it is the only one I ever engaged in, I shall be greatly disappointed if it doesn't succeed. Christian Barnes must have found some proper paints and canvas for Prince to practice with, because before long she thought that his skills were coming along well enough for the family to make a significant investment in them. After he had been enslaved in the Barnes household for just over a year, Prince would accompany Henry Barnes on an extended trip to England. In February 1771, Henry wrote to a family friend named Elizabeth Murray, Prince comes on extremely well. He is with a Mr. Pine, historians believe this was Robert Edge Pine, who has taken him purely for his genius. Mrs. Wright tells me I shall carry him a treasure to America. 
An article for Antiques Magazine, co-written by Amelia Peck of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Paula Bagger of the Hingham Historical Society, explains that Prince was not in London long, but the trip exposed him to new experiences and attitudes. Pine was a supporter of English radical politics in the American independence movement, while the Barnes family was loyalist. The abolition of slavery was an issue of growing importance in England. The following year, an English court held that slavery was not supported by English common law. And a number of free black men were achieving prominence in the arts and letters. It has been suggested that Pine's father, the noted engraver John Pine, was black or of mixed race, and this may have affected Prince's relationship to his teacher. Certainly, the new experiences and attitudes that they encountered in London affected Prince's relationship with Henry Barnes. Barnes became increasingly paranoid that Prince might try to escape while he was in the less repressive environment of Old England. In his 1771 letter to Elizabeth Murray, Henry wrote, I have met with so many disappointments in life, that though late I have learnt not to be too sanguine in my expectations. Indeed, his life and situation are so precarious, if he should even attempt his freedom, it would give me such a disgust to him, I should not overlook it. I want you should return with Bill, for I do not let him converse with any of his own color here. Henry had become so fixated on the risk of Prince self-emancipating if he was able to make contact with his fellow black Londoners that he was considering taking on the expense of bringing another enslaved man from home all the way across the Atlantic to keep Prince company, with the probably spurious assumption that a black New Englander would be more docile. Instead, he ended up taking Prince back to Massachusetts, which would not become a hotbed of the Underground Railroad and other abolitionist activities for over a half-century. The article by Peck and Bagger describes Prince's return to Boston. In March 1772, Christian reported that Prince had taken five pictures from life since his return, three of them as good likenesses as ever Mr. Copley took, and that she planned a trip to Boston to recommend our limner to the public. In January 1773, the ad began running in the Boston Gazette for the enslaved portraitist who takes faces at the lowest rates. That February, a Scottish textile merchant named William Duguid sat for prints, and 237 years later, it caught the eye of Amelia Peck, a curator of decorative arts at the Met. In the article she co-authored with Paula Bagger, she explains how she first encountered the work of Prince de Ma Barnes. At first glance, the small oil portrait of a handsome man in a flowered dressing gown looked somewhat unprepossessing. Hanging on the wall of a dealer's booth at an antiques show in 2010, it had a folksy appeal, but wasn't an obvious candidate for acquisition by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. However, as a curator in the midst of developing an exhibition concerning the worldwide textile trade between 1500 and 1800, I was particularly taken with the chintz banyan worn by the sitter and asked for more information about the picture. The dealer had it on consignment from a person who had purchased it from the family of the subject, William Duguid. It had traveled down through five generations before being sold. In its original frame, the painting was accompanied by a heart-shaped brooch thought to be the one pinned to Duguid's gown. The stretcher, 
a part of the frame, was signed by the then-unknown Prince de Ma Barnes and dated 1773. The whole package proved so appealing that we brought the painting to the museum for examination and further research. It was certainly a rare example of a vernacular American portrait painted before the Revolutionary War. Initial research in the basic sources didn't reveal any mention of an artist named Prince de Ma Barnes. But after finding evidence that William Duguid was a Scottish immigrant textile merchant who advertised his imported goods in the Boston papers in the early 1770s, I was convinced that we needed to acquire the painting. It would be an interesting addition to the American Wing's collection of 18th century portraits, especially in comparison with contemporary works by Boston artists like John Singleton Copley, and would be a terrific addition to my upcoming textile exhibition, Interwoven Globe. Prince de Ma Barnes may have been unknown to Peck and the art historians at the Met, but he was well known to Paula Bagger and the Hingham Historical Society. Since the early 2000s, Bagger, an attorney and the director of the Historical Society, had been researching Prince's life through the Barnes family letters and other correspondence in Boston-area archives. By this time, she knew about his 1745 baptism, his 1769 purchase by the Barnes family, and his improving artistic skills through the early 1770s. From the letters, she was convinced that the portraits of Henry and Christian Barnes in the Hingham collection had been painted by Prince, but there was no solid proof. In her own article about this project, Bagger wrote, We got in touch with the Metropolitan and were able to share what we had learned about Prince. The Met invited us to bring our two portraits to its paintings conservation department where they were examined using X-radiographs and infrared reflectography. The Met concluded that its signed painting by Prince and our two Barnes portraits were all by the same artist. Unfortunately for almost everyone involved, the discovery of Prince's artistic talent played out against a backdrop of the rush to revolution. Christian Barnes's letter describing Prince's natural genius and his amazing portrait work, even though he only had blue paper and pastel crayons to work with, was written two weeks after the Boston Massacre. The Barnes family were staunch loyalists and Tories, and they tried to ignore the writing on the wall for as long as possible. In part, they managed this by having Henry decamp to London for several months with Prince, as his refusal to boycott British goods brought more and more scrutiny. When they returned, Prince painted the portrait of William Duguid, then Elizabeth Smith that summer, and probably the portraits of the Barneses around the same time. That winter, the Boston Tea Party took place. Before long, it was time for the Barnes family to leave. Someone destroyed the family coach, burned Henry in effigy, and broke all the windows of his manufacturing house. Some accounts say that the Sons of Liberty tarred and feathered Henry's horse and he eventually received a letter threatening far worse treatment. If you only want recompense for the damage you have done the country in importing goods contrary to the agreement of the body of merchants on this continent, I will recompense, for I am determined to fetch you to terms, even if I do it at the expense of my own soul, or the cost of a sore back, or any other punishment in this world, only for the good of my country, for I style myself a son of liberty." Therefore, if you will shut up your store and sell nothing out, nor import any goods, you shall sustain no more damage. But if not, I will fire your house and store, and destroy all your substance you have on the earth. And I will take your body, and I will tar it, 
and if nothing else will do but death, you shall have it certainly. The article in Antiques Magazine describes how the Barnes family finally made their escape. They left for England in late 1775. Their goods were confiscated, and Henry was banished by the Act of the General Court in 1778. Most of their possessions, including the family portraits and Daphne, Prince's mother, were left at their Marlborough estate. The portraits of Henry and Christian both have damage in the area of the paintings where their hearts would have been. The lore is that they were attacked by the patriots who came to seize the estate. Prince considered himself a free man after the Barnes family fled Boston, but whether legal papers to this effect were signed is unknown. In April 1777, Prince, now just Prince de Ma, enlisted in Colonel Thomas Kraft's artillery regiment of the Massachusetts militia. As an editorial aside, Christian Barnes had been confident back in 1770 that young Prince shared the family's Tory principles, writing, This surprising genius has every qualification to render him a good servant. Sober, diligent, and faithful. And I believe as he was born in our family that he is of Tory principles. But of that I am not quite so certain as he has not yet declared himself. Enslavers could internalize the ritualistic deference that enslaved household servants had to show to their owners to such a degree that the owners never questioned that their chattel might disagree on anything of importance. Yet Prince Damas' enlistment as a matross, or assistant gunner, in a Patriot artillery regiment shows how far from the truth Christian Barnes's declaration of his Tory principles actually was. The article continues... His name appears in regimental records through early 1778. Likely he fell ill. The regiment's barracks in Boston's West End were close to the provincial hospital, and smallpox was endemic. And on March 11, 1778, he wrote his will. As Prince de Ma, Limner, and a free Negro, he left all he had to his mother, Daphne de Ma. One week later he died, his burial recorded at Trinity Church. We may never know which enslaved African-American man was actually advertised in the Boston Gazette as taking faces at the lowest rates, but both candidates experienced profound changes in their lives in 1775. The lead-up to war in that year also proved to be a turning point in the life of Scipio Moorhead. Sarah Parsons Moorhead is believed to have died sometime in late 1774 and the Boston Gazette and Country Journal of January 2, 1775, includes this notice. To be sold by public auction on Thursday next at 10 o'clock in the forenoon, all the house furniture belonging to the estate of the Reverend Mr. John Moorhead deceased, consisting of tables, chairs, looking-glasses, feather beds, bedsteads and bedding, pewter, brass, sundry pieces of plate, etc., a valuable collection of books, also a likely Negro lad. The sale to be at the house in Ockmady's Lane, South End, not far from Liberty Tree. In a cruel irony, the advertisement that includes Scipio, the likely Negro lad, is strikingly similar to an ad that appeared in the same paper two years before. In the same edition as the ad for the enslaved painter who took faces at the lowest rates, an estate auction offered for sale a good Negro fellow about 21 years of age. If he had never met Phyllis Wheatley, Scipio would have likely remained just as anonymous as the 21-year-old fellow who was being sold in that 1773 ad. 
And after his sale out of the Moorhead family in 1775, he became that anonymous again. There's no more record of the young African painter who Wheatley called a wondrous youth after that 1775 sale. To learn more about Scipio Moorhead and Prince Dema, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 229. I'll have links to primary sources, like scans of the Boston Gazette containing the advertisement for the enslaved painter and the estate auction where Scipio was sold, Phyllis Wheatley's book of poetry, Reverend David McClure's diary, and a 1774 receipt for a painting signed by Prince Dema and proving that he dropped his enslaver's name like a hot potato. I'll include links to the invaluable articles written about Scipio by Eric Slaughter and about Prince by Paula Bagger and Amelia Peck, plus the other modern articles I quoted from. I'll also link to online copies of the three known paintings by Prince Dema that survive, as well as the frontispiece that may have been created by Scipio Moorhead. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link, and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many, many more. Or you can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line. Now I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>